So, John chapter 6, that's where we are. Uh, John chapter 6. Um, Again, Jesus, uh, just to put this in context before we read this, uh, you need to know that this is one of the uh, phenomenal statements in all of Scripture where Jesus begins the I am statements. We'll read, I am the bread of life, uh, and we'll extrapolate that. There are seven different I am statements where Jesus begins to reveal himself to his people in the Gospel of John, and this is the first of which, I am the bread of life. And whenever Jesus says, I am, what he's saying is he's declaring himself to be what we need. He's declaring himself to be God. He's, he's declaring himself that, you know, whether he's saying, I am the bread of life, or I am the light of the world, or he's saying, I am the good shepherd, or I am the gate, or I am the resurrection and the life, or I am the way, the truth, and the life, or I am, um, the, the, you know, um, I am the, the branch. Uh, I am the vine, you are the branches. He's saying, I am the vine. All of those, all seven of those I am statements that we find in the Gospel of John, whether it's in John 6, 8, 10, 11, you know, 14 or 15, you know, we're going to see Jesus declaring himself to be, you know, God the Father. Now, um, or, or co-equal with the Father and, and the, the gift of God. Now, he's also doing this in the midst of the people understand this bread metaphor because Jesus has just filled their bellies. Like they're full from the day before. Now, we're still in the midst of Jesus feeding the 5,000, and after he fed the 5,000, after the next day he crossed over, that night he crossed over the lake, uh, he met his disciples on the water in the midst of the storm, and now it's only, we're only like two days in. Now, it seems like months ago that we were talking about Jesus feeding the 5,000, but we are talking about the next day. We are talking about they're still, it's still fresh in their minds that Jesus has filled their bellies, and he has taught them, and they are following Jesus because they want him to continue to feed their bellies. And so Jesus gets into this discourse about what is true bread from heaven. So that's where we are, just contextually. And again, everything that John writes to us uh, is coming from John chapter 20, verse 31. He's writing all these things so that we might believe and that in believing we may have life in his name. So everything that John says to us is meant to bolster our belief, to increase our faith, so that we might trust and believe in Jesus all the more. And we get to a pretty controversial statement, but we won't get there yet. We'll, we'll save that for next week. So having said that, Hear the word of the Lord, starting in John chapter 6, verse 25. Now, when they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? And Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you, for on him God the Father has set his seal." Then they, answered, then they said to him, what must we do to be doing the works of God? And Jesus answered them, this is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. So they said to him, then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness as it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. And Jesus said, then said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, sir, give us this bread always. And Jesus said to them, see, you see they're confused here, right? Like you see they're confused. You're like, they don't get it. And so Jesus is trying to clarify when he gives this I am statement. In verse 35, Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes 
to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me, and yet you do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. And we all say, the grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. Okay. So, as we jump into this, um, I want us to first see that Jesus, as he's approached by these, you know, this crowd, this throng of people that approach Jesus, they're there because they're like, this guy, he's a novelty. You know, he's done some miraculous things. He's fed their bellies. He seems like he just appears uh, on the other side of the lake, and we have to figure out who he is and what we're called to do, you know, to follow him. But I want you to see this, that that Jesus knows their hearts and their longings, because they're not interested in giving themselves over to Jesus. What they're interested in is what Jesus can give to them. You see, what's going on here is Jesus says, truly, truly, you are here because you want a free meal. (laughs) You're here to fill your bellies and for the comfort that the gospel brings. You want the gift without the giver. You want the reward without the work. You want the glory without any of the suffering. And when I think about this, when these people who show up at Jesus's, you know, on the other side of the lake, they say, what must we do? We want this. But what they really want are the gifts of God rather than God himself. Now, I got to tell you, that one stings. Because I have to say this in my own life and heart, that oftentimes I want the blessings of God without Jesus himself. Like, for example, would you be satisfied if all the blessings of God were yours, but you didn't have Jesus? Would you be satisfied? And I think, if I'm honest with myself, that oftentimes I would say that my life is spent pursuing the blessings of God, the comforts of God, the things of God, without really wanting Him. And that's a a difficult place for us to be. You know, we we oftentimes get um, distracted um, from Jesus by the gifts that he gives. Because what happens is he gives us a good thing, right? Like he gives us a good thing. Like for example, we can have children and, and, and we love our children. But then when we take this gift that the Lord has given and we elevate it to a position of prominence in our life, then it becomes an idolatrous thing that our world begins to revolve around. And when that happens, that good gift is, we, we take that good gift, by the way. We take it, we take that good gift And we take it and we bend it, we distort it, and it becomes an idolatrous thing in our life. In the same way that you can say the same thing for for marriage or your family, 
I mean, even in the midst of the holidays, you know, Christmas, New Year, I mean, we have people who will elevate their family to a place of idolatry that they will forsake God to, to pursue their family. Or you see people who will pursue their family um, much more rigorously and vigorously than they will their, their God. You know, when you think about what we want and what we yearn for, you know, um, these things cloud our spiritual judgment. And they, and they say, again, they're saying, what must we do? What must we do? They're not trusting in Jesus. Again, Jesus has said to them uh, throughout the Gospel of John, it's not what you do, it's what you believe in. Like, what do you believe in? What do you trust in? What are you pursuing? Are you pursuing me or are you pursuing something else? You know, when we think about um, those things, you know, is it ease or peace or the end of suffering or war? You see, Jesus um, promises all of these things when he comes again in him. But we get confused. You know, we get confused because our, our bellies, you know, are starving. I mean, how about this? Um, how many of you recently have, um, just out of curiosity, how many of you made New Year's resolutions? Anybody? Man, it's like nobody. You guys have no resolve. No, no resolve. <laughs> You guys are sad, okay? I'm just telling you that, okay? You know, um, and I was, I, after I, I was going to say that, how many of you who had your hands up actually have already broken your resolution? <laughs> yeah, right, right. See, the people, the few people who have their hands up, those are my people, right? We've made a, resu- we've made a resolution, and now we've already broken it, you know, and this is it. But uh, Jack Miller uh, says this in the midst of um, New Year's resolutions. He says, the only New Year's resolution, and he didn't make this, he said this, the only New Year's resolution I make every year is to collapse more fully on Christ. I trust in his resolve, not mine. Isn't that a great resolution? That every year is to collapse more fully on Jesus rather than on anything else than on anything else that might distract me. Now, notice that the people are confused regarding Jesus, what Jesus is saying. You know, they're saying, the Son of Man will give to you, for on him God the Father has set his seal. And they say, well, what must we do in verse 28? What must we do? And Jesus is saying, essentially, believe in me, trust in me. It's not what you're doing, it's what I have done. And he goes on to say in verse 27, labor for the things that do not perish. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life. The question is, what are we pursuing? What are we laboring after? Are we laboring after things that will not be eternal? Or are we pursuing things that we know will eventually break or go away? Here's a question for you. In your prayer time, if you're praying, are you praying about your own spirituality? And this is what I mean by this. Lord, would you deepen my faith? Not, not Lord, would you give me X, Y, or Z? Or, Lord, would you help these people, which are fine prayers, but are, have you ever prayed, Lord, would you deepen my prayer life? Lord, would you give me a hunger and thirst for your word so that when I wake up in the morning, the thing that I want more than anything else is not a cup of coffee. It is your word. You know, so that, you know, Lord, would you help me to pursue these things and to love what you love and to hate what you hate? 
Are we laboring for the things that do not perish? Uh, yesterday I was, I was on base. Um, so whenever you see me clean shaven or whatever, y'all always know that I've, I've been in uniform the day before or maybe a couple days before. And so I was on base. I was at Forbes Field. And I had this young man come in and he came in and he said, you know, chaplain, you know, can you help me? And I'm like, sure. What, what do you need? He goes, I want to know how to be a chaplain. And I'm like, well, what do you mean by that? He goes, I have come to know Jesus as my Savior. And he's, he's at K-State, you know. Um, he, he's a young man, and he says, I've seen my life transformed by the power of the gospel. And, and even though I'm studying something different, I need to know how do I give my life for the rest of my life? How do I give my life away for the sake of telling other people about Jesus? What do I have to do? Give me a pathway. Give me a, a course of action. Give me some guidance because I want to build my life on that which is eternal. I want to tell other people about the goodness and the grace and the mercy and the forgiveness and the life everlasting that is found only in Jesus. Chaplain, would you help me become like that? And I was like, wow, have a seat. Let's talk about these things. And it was, it was a beautiful thing to see somebody who said, I want to give my life, you know, again, 20, 20 years old, 21 years old, who had been impacted by Jesus in such a way that he says, but I want to just give my whole life to telling others about him. I've seen my whole fraternity impacted by the gospel. You know, we, he actually told me, he said at their, their fall conference, he said, you know, two years ago, there was nobody. He said, this year, they took 18 people from his fraternity at K-State to a Christian conference, six of which had given their lives to Jesus. And he said, all I want to do is tell these other men about Jesus. He goes, when I was, I said, hey, what's your background? Did you grow up in church? He goes, no, I kind of grew up in church, but my mom and dad were, you know, we were nominal Christians. We might go on, maybe we're uh, C&E Christians, Christian Christmas and Easter type people, right? They would show up sporadically. And he goes, but man, when I came to K-State, somebody told me about Jesus, and then somebody showed me what it was to follow Jesus. And he goes, and now I've seen my mom and my sisters come to faith, and they trust and they believe. I want to give that away. Are we pursuing the things that will perish, or are we pursuing the things? Now, notice what they, they do here. Um, and well, actually, before I get there, let me, let me ask this, uh, or let me just quote this. You know, William Barclay uh, says this about the Roman culture of the day. Again, when, when John is writing, he's in the midst of the Roman world. And he was saying that the luxuries of the Roman society were unparalleled. That at the, the, the top of the Roman culture, they would serve feasts of peacocks' brains and nightingale tongues. Think about that. A feast of peak, and again, I'm not saying that's good. I'm just saying like, this takes a lot to get full on peacock's brains and nightingale's tongues. Meals costing thousands of pounds of silver and gold were commonplace. He tells of one Roman lady who was married in a robe so richly jeweled that it cost the equivalent of a million dollars. Barclay concludes there was a reason for all this, and the reason was a deep dissatisfaction with life, a hunger that nothing could satisfy. They would try anything for a new thrill because they were both appallingly rich and appallingly hungry. Rich and hungry is a pretty good description of where we live today. 
rich and hungry. Rich in the sense that you know, not many of us have missed a meal. Matter of fact, when you do miss a meal, you're like, you're overwhelmed by how hard it is. Like some of you, right? At least for me. Like when, I, when I've missed like two or three meals, which is like, I don't know, has happened like never. Um, you know, I feel like I know exactly how those, you know, prisoners in prison camps felt. You know, I've missed one whole day of meal and I just can't deal with it anymore, right? I mean, this is what's going on. And yet, you know, what, what Jesus is saying is like, you are pursuing the wrong thing. You are, pursuing thing, you are pursuing things that are not eternal. Lloyd-Jones says this, the great tragedy of the world is that though it gives itself to seek happiness, it never seems to be able to find it. We are not to hunger and thirst after blessedness. We are not to hunger and thirst after happiness, but that is what most people are doing. We put happiness and blessedness as the one thing that we desire, and thus we always miss it. It always eludes us. According to the scriptures, happiness is never something that should be sought out directly. It is always something that results from seeking something else. That something is Jesus. That alone will make us truly happy. And if you put happiness in the place of righteousness, the righteousness of Christ, you will never get it. Your happiness is always derivative, and it comes from Jesus. Now, in the midst of this, the people are totally confused by what Jesus is saying. If you're in John chapter 6, you're reading this, and you're going, okay, what's going on here? Again, they found him on the other side. Jesus is speaking to them, and they actually say, you know, what sign do you perform? Now, remember this. Yesterday, he fed 5,000 men and women, probably upwards of 20,000 people with just a few bread, a few fish, a few sardines, and a few rolls. But today they're like, yeah, but what have you done for us lately? Because it's been 24 hours. You got to do something for us again, right? I mean, this, is, this is kind of where we are. I, I, do, I do resemble or I can empathize with this, these people's plights because I feel like in my own life this is how it goes. And they say, so what sign do you have for us that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness as it is written. He gave them bread from heaven to eat. So they're basically saying like, hey, are you as great as Moses? You know, like our fathers, you know, they're talking about manna in the wilderness. Again, they're talking about bread. There's this great bread theme working itself out now. And Jesus says to them, truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses. So what he's doing is he's taking Moses and he's knocking Moses down a level or two. It's not Moses who gave you bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. And they're like, okay, for the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Now notice what he says in verse 33 here. For the bread of God, the ultimate bread of God, this, it's not manna, but the bread of God is he, so it's not something, but it's someone. Now they're still very confused by this. Because we know they're confused, because as he says, for the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven. So it's a person who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. And yet they still say, sir, give us this bread always. And they're still thinking that this is something that they can consume, 
something that will, 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 will come. And then Jesus clarifies in this great statement, he says, Jesus said to them, I am, and this I am, this ego a me, this Greek construction is a, similar to Exodus chapter three when it's talking about Yahweh. I am that I am. This ego a me, all throughout the I am statements, he's gonna use this, this Greek phrase. I am the bread of life. And whoever comes to me shall not hunger and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said that you have seen me, and yet you do not believe. Now, that is interesting because what he says is, you've all come, but you don't believe. You don't believe that I am from the Father. You don't believe that I am the bread that has come down from, from heaven that gives life to the world. You want to fill your bellies, but you don't want to believe in me. Now that's, as we, we said this today in, in our, from the Heidelberg, and, and I really do like this because when we think about how do we know our own sinfulness and misery? Well, the law of God tells us. Well, what is the law of God? Well, it's summarized in Matthew 22. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And second is to love your neighbor as yourself. You know, essentially the first four commandments, the last six commandments. The, the vertical and the horizontal. And then I love it in verse, in, in, when question five says this, he goes, can you do this? Can you love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and love your neighbor as yourself? And it's emphatic, it says no. I have a natural tendency to hate God and hate my neighbor. Now, some people are offended by that. That's okay. <laughs> I'm okay with that. You know, but we are sinners who need a savior. Sinners, you know, what sin means is we're missing the mark. We're not obeying God's law. We're not pursuing what God wants us to pursue. And so these, these people, you know, essentially, now we, now we jump in because when we think about this, this idea of bread from heaven, it goes something like this. What is bread and why is it significant and why is it used? Well, first of all, bread is necessary for life. It's fundamental and will keep you alive. You know, we see this actually, you know, that, that bread now, um, again, we... Most of us really, really like bread. Matter of fact, even if you have celiac and you know, gluten allergies and all kinds of other stuff, you miss bread, right? I mean, how many of us, you know, bread is a, a wonderful form, but it's also life-sustaining. Um, when we think about, you know, George Washington at Valley Forge, you know, what the soldiers actually had to eat were, were something called fire cakes. And you know what a fire cake was? A fire cake was flour and water, maybe salt if they had it, and then they would cook it on some ashes, and they would eat that over and over again. You got to wonder why the colonial army was so mad was they were eating fire cakes over and over and over again. While the British were living in, in relative luxury in the homes of Philadelphia uh, gentry. Um, but again, you know, Bread is sustaining for life. Secondly, it's good for everyone. Like, what's the first thing that you oftentimes give a young child? You give them like a cracker. You know, you give them something, some form of bread. What is something that you give an older person? You give somebody bread. You know, how about this? It's good for everybody. Not only is it good for everybody, but what is one of the first things that you get when you go to a restaurant? They give you bread. Now, why do they give you bread? They want you to fill up so you can't eat all the other stuff, you know, whatever it is. But oftentimes when you get something really, really good, how many of you have had just warm bread and then you're like, man, this is going to be great. But because we're gluttonous Americans, then we smather good butter, not that, but 
you know, imposter yogurt butter, but I mean like the good butter on top of the bread, right? And like, and you eat it and it is amazing. It is sustaining and to the point where it's not that you eat one piece or two, you eat as much as somebody will give and really you just kind of keep eating it, right? It's good for everyone. But not only that, when we think about this idea of bread, we need it daily. This idea of, of daily bread, we, we hear this in the Lord's Prayer, give us this day our daily bread. You know, so when Jesus says, I am the bread of life, he's saying, not only do you receive it, but you get it and you need it every day. I need the bread of life in my life every day. It is not only good for me, it not only sustains life for me, but it is something that I am meant to have every day. I mean, some of you have read the little devotional called Our Daily Bread. And that's what it's meant for, is that we might abide with Christ, to be connected to him. And so when Jesus said, I am the bread of, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. One of the things that occurs also in the midst of eating bread, and many of you who um, have eaten a lot of bread over the holidays, is it produces growth. Growth in height and growth in girth, right? We see that, right? Some of us make resolutions every year because of the amount of bread that we've eaten. But in this way, it means that, you know, the bread of life, the bread of heaven is meant to produce growth in, in us, meaning that when we are consuming the bread of life, when we are abiding with Christ, staying connected with him, we will grow in Christ. James Boyce says regarding growth, he says, where are the great churches of the former age? Churches filled with men and women who knew the great doctrines of the faith and were not afraid to trumpet them to a sleeping world. Where are the Augustines, the Luthers, the Calvins, the Wesleys of our time? We do not have a strong church today. What we have is a weak, anemic Christianity, a lot of easy believism coupled with morality. What is the reason for our sickly Christian postures? Undoubtedly, the reason is our deep failure to feed upon Jesus Christ, who alone can make us grow. You know, again, oftentimes, um, when somebody comes into my office, um, or even you know, whether I'm on base or I'm, I'm here at the church, and somebody comes in and they're struggling, I ask them three things. Uh, first of all, I said, hey, you know, if they're struggling with you know, anxiety, an issue, whatever it might be, um, I asked him three things. I said, hey, are you, are you exercising? Are you sleeping? And how's your diet? <laughs> Those are just three simple questions. You know, and, we, and we talk about a whole bunch of other things as well. But if you're not feasting upon Christ, if you're not in the word of God, if you're not hungering and thirsting for the word of God, then you will feel empty. And your Christianity and your connection to Jesus and to God the Father will be anemic. Some of us feel far from God, but some of us haven't opened our Bibles in a while. But there's grace. There's always grace. Just pick it up. Pick it up and read. Think of that Latin tola lege. Just pick it up and read. Now, notice what we have here, here too, and we're going to dive deep, but Jesus said, um, and when he's coming to them, but I said to you that you have seen me and yet you do not believe. In verse 37, this is probably, we should memorize this verse. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. Now this is a deep, deep verse. 
Because what it says is that, you know, that the Father has given these people to Jesus. And that, matter of fact, there's, there's this, these allusions to the, the elect, that, that God is, is giving over his people to Jesus. And this is not the only place that we see this. We see this also in, in John chapter 17. If you have your Bibles, we're still in the, in the Gospel of John. But in John 17, in Jesus' high priestly prayer, he says these things regarding you know, this giving of people to Jesus. In John 17, verse 6, he says, I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Again, in verse 9 of that same chapter, he says, I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. And then again in verse 24 of that same chapter, he says, Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory. Father, I desire, again at the beginning, I desire that they also whom you have given me. There is this utter sense that we're talking about the election of, of the elect, of those whom God has called, those whom God has loved. Now, let me ask you this question. Does God elect you to salvation? Or does God elect those to salvation? Yes, absolutely. Do you make a decision to follow Jesus? Yes, absolutely. How do you work those things out? It's above my pay grade. <laughs> You're going to have to work with that, okay? Do you have to trust and believe? Yes. Does God call you to himself? Does God regenerate you? Does regeneration precede faith? I believe it does. I believe the first John chapter one, everyone who believes has been born of God. That's what I believe from the scriptures. Do I also believe that you must trust and believe and that you must, you know, basically you cry out to God that you're a sinner and you need a, sa a savior? Absolutely. You know, I mean, don't allow both of those things to, to, you know, discourage you, but rather take both truths and embrace them. We think about this term irresistible grace, irresistible grace. Uh, let me, let me quote R.C. Sproul because I, you know, I don't quote him very often, but he says this about irresistible grace in the midst of this. He says, God's grace is so powerful that it has the capacity to overcome our natural resistance to it. Again, remember question five of the Heidelberg? I have a, no, I have a natural tendency to hate God and to hate my neighbor, where irresistible grace, the grace of God, which flows forth from heaven upon sinners, says that it can overcome these natural tendencies. Here's what Sproul says. He says, the idea of irresisti irresistibility conjures up the idea that one cannot possibly offer any resistance to the grace of God. However, the history of the human race is the history of relentless resistance to the sweetness of the grace of God. Irresistible grace does not mean that God's grace is incapable of being resisted. Indeed, we are capable of resisting God's grace, and we do resist it. The idea is that God's grace is so powerful that it has the capacity to overcome our natural resistance to it. It is not that the Holy Spirit drags people kicking and screaming to Christ against their wills. The Holy Spirit changes the inclination and the disposition of our wills so that whereas we were previously unwilling to embrace Christ, now we are willing and more than willing Indeed, we aren't dragged to Christ, we run to Christ. And we embrace him joyfully because the Spirit has changed our hearts. They are no longer hearts of stone that are impervious to the commands of God and to the invitations of the gospel. God melts the hardness of our hearts when he makes us new creations. 
The Holy Spirit resurrects us from spiritual death so that we come to Christ because we want to come to Christ. The reason we want to come to Christ is because God has already done a work of grace in our souls. Without that work, we would never have any desire to come to Christ. That's why we say that regeneration precedes faith. That's what irresistible grace means. And when we see, and and again, all of these theological terms, as we see them working themselves out, that's why when we are able to baptize children or baptize a young man today, we say, this is God drawing him to himself. It is the Holy Spirit upon which when we pour out this water, we're saying the Holy Spirit, it's a sign and seal of the covenant of grace of the Holy Spirit being poured out upon this, this, this person, upon Charlie today, right? And we're saying that, that the Holy Spirit has drawn him. It's not like he's being dragged along like a small child who doesn't want to go, right? Rather, he's running towards Jesus because of the grace and mercy of God. Now, look at verse 30. I'm, 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 I'm getting close to finishing here. You know, verse 37 says, All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. We'll talk about your know, perseverance of the saints later. But look at what verse 37 it says. It says, all. It says, all who come. Like, I want you to know this. If you come to Christ, he will not cast you out. If you come to Jesus then I believe that that is a work of the Holy Spirit in your life, drawing you to himself. And if you come to Christ, if you come to Jesus, and you say, Lord, have mercy upon me, he will not cast you out. He will never cast you out. Isn't that a beautiful truth? That our Savior always welcomes. He never pushes away. Again, this is why Jesus is so much better than anything that we can have from the world. Years ago, it's a great story, that years ago in the Midwest, there was a German farmer by the name of Klein. It's a good German name, right? Klein. He was an ungodly man, and he lived across the street from an evangelical church. And he would never go to church. He did not believe the gospel. To his way of thinking, the gospel was for other people, not for him. One day, however, the Bible school of the church began to teach the Bible school children the chorus of a hymn that went like this. And they were singing it outside. It went like this, grace, tis a charming sound. Harmonious to the ear, heaven heaven with the echo shall resound, and all the earth shall hear. Saved by grace alone, this is all my plea. Jesus died for all mankind, and Jesus died for me. Now Klein was listening at a fence post across the street. He heard most of the words clearly that day. But the line that went, Jesus died for all mankind, he thought they were singing, Jesus died for old man Klein. (laughs) And Jesus died for me. The thought 
that Jesus died for him personally, finally sank into his heart, and he found himself crossing the street to attend the services at that church, and he heard the gospel, and he believed and committed his life to Jesus. That Jesus died for old man Klein. Who does Jesus die for? All, all. Would you simply come and trust in Jesus? Psalm 16 says this. Psalm 16, verse 9. I've set the Lord always before me. Because he is at my right hand, I shall not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. Why is our heart glad? Why is the psalmist's heart glad and his whole being rejoice? Because his, his Savior is at his right hand. And it goes on to say in Psalm 16:9, My flesh also dwells secure. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. But indeed, in verse 11, he says, You make known to me the path of life in your presence. And get this, child of God, in the presence of the Lord, there is fullness of joy. I love that because it's, it's not that we get all the gifts of God and there is joy, but in the presence of the Lord, there is fullness of joy. Not partial, there is fullness of joy. And in the midst of the fullness of joy that we experience as a child of God by believing and trusting in the Lord Jesus, it says, and at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. So Jesus, when we think about heaven and earth, this second advent, the presence of God, the beauty of following Jesus, might we trust and believe in him all the more knowing that he will never falter or waver. Would you pray with me? Father, I pray, Lord, that there would be those in our midst, Father, like, who were just like old man Klein, and that they would know that they're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Father, forgive us when we substitute your gifts for the giver. Father, may we lean upon Jesus and trust in him. Father, in your presence, there is fullness of joy. So, Father, as we feast upon the bread of life every day, as we abide in Jesus, Father, might you give us that fullness of joy. And, Father, I pray, Lord, that the joy would overflow in such a way that it comes through our mouth and our actions so that other people might know the name of Jesus. Father, may we give ourselves to that which is eternal. Lord, help us. Lord, save us. Lord, give us this fullness of joy. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.